Okay, the the exit was much much smoother than usual. I think it was very. You finally warmed up. Should we go another hour and a half? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Howdy, everyone. Good afternoon, late morning. I don't know where 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, when the breakfast menu ends, for me, that's the afternoon. So I'm going to say it's the afternoon. I don't know. Today, we are so excited to, well, we're always excited. Every episode of, of Gradlings, we get to talk to some amazing folks working in linguistics, studying linguistics, changing the field. That's how I like to see it. Today, we are talking with Matt Berner. And we are going to learn a lot about, about actually, essentially about formless linguistics, which neither Bowden nor I are, you know, very well versed in. So this is going to be a learning experience like no other. And I think also Colombian Spanish will make its way into the conversation because Colombian Spanish is wonderful. And probably so. It will probably creep in there. We love it. We love it. All right. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment. And we're back. And today we're joined by Matt, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he's going to tell us um, a little bit about himself. And then we're going to get into his wonderful research that he's doing. So Matt, go ahead. Hey, good morning, afternoon to everyone listening. Thank you to the Gradlings for inviting me to talk to you all today. Yes, as Bowden mentioned, my name is Matt. I go also by Mateo or Matthew if I'm in trouble with my mother. <laughs> Um, but uh, I did my undergrad in Spanish at the University of Central Florida, and I did my master's there as well. Um, and then I scooted back up to the Midwest where I'm from, finally, after 17 long years of heat and humidity, um, where I'm doing my PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, going on my fifth year. And basically, my research is kind of revolving around syntax and morphology at this point and specifically in reference to a language called Asturian, which is spoken in the northwestern part of the Iberian Peninsula. And even more specific yet, there's a phenomenon called mass neuter, which a lot of people in the literature refer to it as. And I'm kind of trying to tease apart what is happening there with noun adjective agreement and position. So that's what I've been working on for the past few years. And we'll see what happens in the next year with everything as I finish up my dissertation. Matt's very prepared for a podcast. Let me just say very smooth. Um, Bowden, we need to take some notes. (laughs) A lot smoother, a lot smoother than my, it only took me three times to do the intro though. It's fun. Just three this time. There was one time (laughs) I think it took Justin like seven tries. (laughs) Okay. So the first question that I have is this thing with mass neuter or mass neutering, right? So like, what is that? Like, can you just unpack that a little bit? Yeah, so mass neuter in Asturian, it's referred to as such, especially in the literature that's been kind of going over this concept for the past 50 or 60 years, because in the language, there are pretty much only ever cited three minimal pairs of nouns that can distinguish between count or mass by the final vowel. So for example, fierru with that O or the U ending is considered an, ob- an object made of iron. It's a count thing, but fierro will be the material or the, the element. Same with pelu, which is a single hair or pelo, which is refers to the hair. 
on your head as a collective. And then filu, which is thread, or filo, which is thread the material. So they kind of call it mass neuter because those three nouns derive from Latin and they refer back to the neuter vendor in Latin. However, it's somewhat of a misnomer because it happens with other nouns that aren't from Latin. They don't make that uo distinction, but it extends further too if you take any kind of mass noun in central Listerian and post-nominally modify it with an adjective, you get that o ending on the adjective. So you would see something like la ropa guapo which means beautiful clothing in general as a, as a mass thing. So the, and this is kind of the, you know, with my contact with different romance languages, I think this is the first time I've heard of this phenomenon. So as a story like developed on the Iberian Peninsula and is, is this phenomenon been documented in other languages that um, grew, you know, next door or anything? Right. So it's, it's kind of its own thing. It's, mm -hmm. It sets it apart from the other Iberian languages. There are three main groupings or varieties of Asturian because you have Western, Central, and Eastern Asturian. Only the Central variety does this, what I'll just call is mass agreement mm -hmm. uh, on adjectives and, and, and that uo distinction on some nouns in the language. Other than that, the closest you might see is like in Cantabria which does something similar, but that's when you get more into the discussion on metaphony. And I'm not as familiar with that side, but um, it's typically something when the scholars are talking about, oh, mass neuter, and you're talking about the Iberian Peninsula, it's, it's Central Asturian. And then around the borders, other stuff gets picked up in the mm -hmm. languages like Spanish just south of that or in parts of just north of Burgos. Mm -hmm. They do it with lay low, distinction right. on the, the direct object. Other than that, the best I have is some central Italian dialects do show something similar. Oh, that's uh, super cool. Like Neapolitan does it with a uh, geminated initial consonant. Mm -hmm. So like, it'd be something like, let's just say it's pane is bread. Mm -hmm. you, you might, if you count it, it might be a singular P. And if it's mass, it might be a double or something to that effect. Oh, got you. Okay. I haven't, I haven't ventured out that way in a while, though, but mm -hmm. uh, off the top of the dome, it's not super widespread in romance from what I can tell. Very cool. So how did this, um, like, what's the, what's the story of, like, how you arrived at this, um, yeah. at this project? Like, how does, how does one, um, how does one get into, um, mass neutering in Auster, Austrian? <laughs> In, in a more interesting way, I would say, what is this origin story? Like Marvel right. Universe it, like do the whole thing. <laughs> I want a montage, I want like- I have a character like, arc now. I love it. Yes, yeah. absolutely, you get a character arc. Um, so I'm gonna name drop now, but- Love it, we're here for it, we're academics, it's what we do. Awesome, <laughs> back, back, back when I was doing my bachelor's at UCF, I had just gotten to like, what they call their like the 3000 level courses which is mm -hmm. past all the the language learning ones and now you're you're in the 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 target language learning topics i was uh registered to, or signed up or enrolled whatever the term is you'd like uh, to take a, a advanced conversation course and my uh what would be future advisor and now friend and colleague and now also member of the committee for my dissertation because I'm taking this all the way. He showed up basically to teach linguistics. And at this point, there wasn't a linguistics professor. So his name's Paco. And basically, uh, he was just cool. He, he, he kind of 
helped me along. I couldn't talk to a classmate, like a class full of my peers of seven people in Spanish. I got up, did my, you know, oral presentation on an article and botched it. It was, it was awkward and bad. I never sweat so much in my life. But anyways, um, I worked and I worked and, you know, ended up taking syntax with him the semester after. And I just loved it because I was able to play with the language, look at the inner workings of it, learn why things are said this way or why people theorize that they're said a certain way and just ended up hitting off with him, taking more classes with him because I love linguistics and he was the only one there. So I, I had to take mm -hmm. linguistics with him. But, but anyways, he's from Spain. He's from Asturias. Mm -hmm. um, and I forget how exactly, but we got on the topic of, of Asturias and he had mentioned, oh, I miss Asturias. I miss my mother. You know, I miss the family I got there. So I like languages. So I basically would start learning just random phrases to like kind of bring his culture to him, you know? Mm -hmm. And I ended up, and I don't have it here because it's trapped in my office at school, but I have, I ended up getting a copy of the grammar. Mm -hmm. And I eventually would start emailing him in Asturian because oh, wow. I, I knew Spanish so I could look at the grammar and oh, how would I change the, the grammar? So 40 minutes later in an email, because that's how long it took to figure things out, you know, I would start sending him messages and then it turned into just random phrases in the hall um, and stuff like that. And then I was in this class one semester and getting ready to gear up towards applying for uh, master's programs. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I needed to learn more from him. I actually looked at Champaign-Urbana for, for my master's degree because um, I, mean, I wanted to get back up north. But I'm like, eh, that's a lot of money right now to leave state. So I stayed there and he ended up offering me to work under him on his on a thesis, a master's thesis. And the topic was mass neuter, which is what he had set aside to go back to after tenure because his words are, it's Pandora's box, right? And it is, it's a complex thing that a lot of people have taken a stab at. And basically he passed the torch, you know, and we opened up Pandora's box for my master's thesis, took a, a pretty good stab at it. And I, I love the topic. I love the language working with it. So I kept it going and, you know, he pushed me to do a PhD here at UW where luckily my advisor who, who did go to school with him in Georgetown, um, was open enough to let me do what I wanted to do. And once I showed him what was going on with it, he was intrigued. So now I'm keeping it going. Yeah, this is a really good origin story. I'm kind of jealous, not gonna lie. Like this and is- uh... I don't even have to be evil. <laughs> not, not necessarily, you know. There's time to turn. There's time to turn. But... <laughs> that's, really, that's, a, that's a really cool story. And I think like, honestly, like anybody who uh, it seems like stories like that, like with people that do languages, like there's always like, it always goes back to that one teacher, right? There's always like, there seems to be like a parallel in everybody's, <clears throat> in everyone's um, story arc that, uh, you know, there's that, there's that one teacher that really, something happened, something clicked, they did something to make it fun, they did something to care about you as an individual. I mean, mine was German, my German 101 instructor, you know, that was... Like that was the first, that was the first time, like I didn't even, I was a, I was a chemistry major. Like I was not even interested in language. I was just taking, I took German because the only openings were, um, the only openings for foreign language when I registered for classes 
was uh, Russian and French, and I was like, can't do Russian because the because the alphabet and French just sounds weird to pronounce. German might be fun. Um, I liked a bunch of like '80s, uh, like early German um, electronic music, and I was like, sure, like I'll just that sounds fun. I'll do my 101 and 102 requirement, and I'll be done with it. But little did I know, masters years living in Germany, that would be the path that I went down. <laughs> And he met me, and that was the highlight of his actual German <laughs> career. I met Robin. That was the best part. <laughs> That's, I mean, but actually, really, it's such a good origin story. Um, I do agree with Bowden that, you know, it does take, in the most circumstances, like a connection or something that happens with either a faculty member or someone that you just kind of look up to that really inspire you to go on. Um, you know, now I'm thinking about my own experiences and I'm just kind of like, do I have an origin story? Like, how did I fall into this? Because, and Bowdoin can attest to this, there's many a day, also people on my Twitter can definitely attest to this. There's many a day where I'm just not about the French. I'm not about the language. I'm not about anything. And, and then there's other times where I'm just all like gung-ho, like these stacks of books, you know, and just, I'm going through it. But I really love that you have this connection to this particular language that's relative to other languages spoken on the peninsula. It's very small. And so I actually not even very familiar in terms of like the statistics that of the Asturian, you know, speaking population. So, and you said that the, the phenomenon that you're examining in your dissertation project is from the central dialect uh, or central variety of Asturian. Now, does that correspond with any like metropolitan area or anything like geographic? like in terms of population density? At last glance at Ethnologue, as I was drafting the chapter I'm currently revising, mm -hmm. there's about 100, 110,000 speakers of Asturian. Mm -hmm. A lot of them aren't in Asturias because of the, the crisis that hit right. about 2008-ish, mm -hmm. same as us in the US. So a lot of them left for work and whatnot. I don't know exactly how much of that 100, 110,000 is central variety, but there are two major cities, for instance, the capital, Oviedo is, is in there, mm -hmm. um, and Gijón is another big city. Right. Mm -hmm. And the hub seems to be, I'll say linguistically, because that's where the, the sede, what's sede? The headquarters, that's a good word. The headquarters mm -hmm. of uh, the gramatica, the, in the academia, that, uh -huh. that's where they're situated. Mm -hmm. um, I believe it's Oviedo. But since it's the capital, I've never looked and seen if that had anything to do with where everything got set up. But mm -hmm. as you work your way out, it's still spoken in rural areas. Right. And especially what they refer to as um, the monte. So mm -hmm. um, basically, as you work up to, you know, the mountain area, you get, you know, more and more people that maybe speak closer to a monolingual historian. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is that Spanish has crept so far in there. So a lot right. of people are pretty much bilingual. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a huge resurgence on people trying to learn the language. Okay, so there's like a revitalization movement going on there as well. Yeah. Um, that's, I'm, I'm always so happy when I hear about that. Um, I recently completed a project on like Gallego revitalization and the neo-falantes and everything like that. So it's really cool to hear about. What are some of the obstacles that are a part of this kind of research and what have you kind of found so far? I can note two major obstacles. Okay. The first one is geographic. Mm -hmm. I can't just on my TA stipend get up and go over there and do field research. The second I would say is data. 
for the past 50 or 60 years, the same data has been cited, recycled, talked about. A lot of individuals that speak the language write papers on, you know, the typical native speaker, you know, this, this is my language, this is how we say it. And then they go and theorize about how it's used, right? So sometimes it's not external data to the individual writing papers or books. And the best I have at a corpus is called a slema. Um, they haven't gotten around to tagging it yet for me to look up, say, parts of speech. So if I wanted to find anything, and it's a very good corpus. Um, mm -hmm. I've talked to Julio Viejo Fernandez it was, was part of that project. I've talked to him via email a lot. There's a lot of words there that I could mine, but I have to search the actual word. So that was the second main thing is getting data to corroborate things, to theorize about. That's part of my dissertation is I, I armed up two surveys to kind of test this mass neuter theory on nouns itself mm -hmm. and then push it further to adjective agreement and some type of external pragmatic, you know, sense of things. And part of those surveys is this, the, the uh, participants giving me sentences. So I'm going to have new data uh, on my dissertation. That's going to be amazing for the yeah. field. That's me trying to help that, you know, gap. Exactly. Absolutely. So when we come back, we will uh, transition and talk about your experiences as a student and also as an educator. So it will be just a moment. Stay tuned. All right, and we're back. And after learning so much about how cool Astorian is in general and also how cool Matt is in general, um, we're here to talk more about your experiences as a student and as an educator and basically you know, any connections with your research into your teaching and what's it like to be in the Spanish department and also if you want to do like a little shout out to like your love for Colombia that's cool too we are always here for that <laughs> yeah so like how so what kind of courses have you had experience with teaching um basically and I like to I, let me rephrase that um, a question I like to, to ask folks who I know have been to different institutions, um, how has, if you've taught at UCF as well, how's the teaching experience kind of differed at these two universities? Because so they are a bit different in organization and orientation, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like what kind of like students do you see or what kind of, you know, learning expectations, outcomes that you have seen across the board or have kind of contrasted with one another? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple differences down to the students. I mean, there it's it's you get a mixture of a little bit of everyone from either from different states or their parents from different states when you're in Orlando. Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely a melting pot. So you get, I feel, in my opinion, not trying to step on anyone's toes, more of a kind of a laid back kind of vibe. Also, I don't know if this has changed. I, I adjunct over the summer there to to pay my bills over the summer, but. Mm -hmm. um, when I was there teaching as a TA, you know, you had Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes or Tuesday, Thursday classes. Then I came here to Wisconsin. I, I know the Midwest vibe. I'm from the Midwest. Um, so things are more rigid schedule wise. People maybe are not always as open, uh, but they're no problem talking to you if you start a conversation. So culturally, I, I, I was in my element because I, I lived in the in Illinois since I was 11. And academically, you know, the, the courses I'm teaching here as a TA are Monday through, they were Monday through Friday. So I was like, wow, five days a week, but it's good because you need that contact with the students, especially with the language. Mm -hmm. And 
it's 50 minutes a day for five days a week, I know you're listening to Spanish. So it's a good way to get input, you know, on their ears. Um, that uh, eventually dropped down to we only go Monday through Thursday now. Right. Mm -hmm. I think as late as last year that started. And we've done different assignments to kind of make up for that missed day um, mm -hmm. every week. But so those were big differences. Uh, as a TA, unfortunately, I've only ever been able to teach you know, first and second semester Spanish until I got here. I taught a, a composition course a couple times and I taught third semester Spanish as well. But I like the beginning levels because I have a chance to kind of get my students, you know, into the language, show them things, you know, make it fun. And hopefully if I did my job, I can sway that, oh, I just need the requirements people to take more classes. So I think those are the main differences kind of culturally and I guess schedule based. Mm -hmm. uh, on the I courses. Um, I never had the chance to teach linguistics courses, unfortunately, mm -hmm. just because of the way things are set up in both institutions. But I've supplemented that by, hey, I'm going to Slinky, which is a conference that travels around Carolina. And I know people that teach at certain schools. It's, it's at your school. Can I teach a class to your class? So I've done that a couple times with different colleagues, you know, go to their class and give a lesson. So I found ways to not necessarily complain about not getting to teach linguistics because I really want to, but I can't, but I found a way to make it happen. That's really awesome. I really, um, I think that's such a cool idea to really take advantage of, you know, uh, putting your conference travel in with to teach different kinds of students too, you know, mm -hmm. especially those if you if you get a chance to talk about a story and maybe students who have never heard about, of it, of course. So start young and we're going to be like language diversity, yes. just like in it, you know. Start young. My 102 students, they have, there's a chapter in our, in our textbook that talks about the history of French. And so what I do is I actually don't teach them that. And instead I talk about all the other regional languages in the country and they have a huge project. They're like, this is so cool. This language sounds so. Yeah foreign and I was just like yeah it's a foreign language absolutely <laughs> were there, you know, like they, they speak French in this country I didn't know that exactly yeah we have we're actually building a course on that right now um, a brand new gen ed course so I'm, I'm really excited to see that one see that one go to yeah make uh, it positive about this community speaks the language and maybe not get into what happened for that to happen <laughs> Now we're gonna, yeah, I, let me tell you, I have a whole lot of thing, a whole lot of lessons about colonization and I, we're, we're gonna talk about it because it's. I was, I was gonna say like, I was teaching, um, teaching German, like teaching, I of course taught like, like, like you were saying, Matt, just, you know, like introductory, you know, 100 level, or for me, it was just 100 level classes. But like I would mention, we're an isogloss in, in German that's called the Benrath line. Basically, it's like, Kind of a line right like kind of a border and then the further north that you go the more that um sounds like uh, for example the word for apple in german is apfel like in high german or standardized whatever german the farther north that you go the more it becomes a p sound the farther south that you go the more that it becomes like a soft f so um so you have like in um in like low germany or like in the north you have people saying like apple which is closer to an english pronunciation of the word or the further south that you go of the line um the more tendency for people to say like 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 really pronounce the f in the word and like you would i would just share that just like as a really quick you know thing and People would be so interested in it. and I had, you know, I had students come back and would be like, 
oh, hey, like I looked up, you know, there's also this, there's this other like, you know, line or whatever, you know, in German. I'm like, oh yeah, that's called an isogloss, like, you know, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And it's like, oh, this, you know, this, this student could be, this is like a little budding linguist here. <laughs> you know, like I loved, um, always loved putting, uh, putting stuff like that in my teaching. That, doesn't that happen also like further south? It's like ich, and then you go uh, north and it's more like ich, like what that should be, right? Yeah, exactly. So this has been so great. Y'all stay tuned for our last little section of the program and we'll be back in a moment. So now that brings us to our last section, which we typically call lessons learned. So Matt, as we've been talking about your research and we've been talking about your experience as a grad student, <clears throat> um, wanted to see if you had some advice for yourself, like when you were, if you can think back to when you were a, a younger grad student, when you were maybe starting your master's or something or starting your PhD, what's something that you wish that you could go back and tell yourself that uh, you wish you would have learned uh, now in hindsight? I think it would come down to when I started, I was very like, you know, high octane. I know where I'm going. I'm going to get this done. I want to do these things. I want to research this topic. I think uh, looking back on all the things that have happened since, you know, transitioning from bachelor's to master's and, and on would be to maybe go with the flow a little more, you know, accept things that happen or come out of the woodwork because a lot of times those are opportunities and that's a point where you need to kind of pause and say well if i go through this door that just opened up this is where it could lead me or do i say no forget that i'm going to keep going on where i'm going you know because it could very well get you to your end point that you wanted to go to from the beginning i mean it could crash and burn you but I mean, usually opportunities like that, that pop up randomly, aren't ones that are usually detrimental to maybe your timetable on what you want to get things done by, or even, you know, if you take into account all the people you might meet um, in your field, for instance. Um, I say that because I'm here by accident. When I look back on like the whole path, it's kind of funny because I was doing my associate's degree in music production to, to record music like way back in 2009, 10. And I accidentally, I'm going to say accidentally because it was irresponsibly, but I accidentally didn't register for my courses in time, which made me wait until after winter break. So there was a chance I wasn't going to get classes and I wasn't going to get my financial aid. So I switched my major, did a general AA, found my way back to Spanish, in which I ended up using a lot more at Disney um, and eventually found my way to the bachelor's program at UCF and kept going with it. And Paco, who was my linguistics professor that got me on linguistics, came by accident because he was about five years out, you know, not even in the field, working in Spain and got back into it. So he subverted my path. And it's kind of interesting to see, like, if I were to quote Bob Ross, all these happy little accidents, because you go forward and Wisconsin wasn't on my radar. I had a five school list of my PhD programs. I was an accident that I found my way back to Spanish and it was an accident that he ended up coming to UCF to teach me. And then he recommended UW-Madison. Uh, and it's like, I have a colleague there. He's, he's very good. He, he knows what he's doing. You should take a look at the program. It was the program for me. I looked it up. I applied. 
you know, and next things, next time I'm here, I'm doing my PhD under Grant. And then their advisor, Hector Campos, who was in Georgetown, came to visit us and told us a story about he was in Greek for, Greece for some reason, staying with some guy uh, learning Greek. And he learned things from him and I don't know whatever happened. He was there visiting, come to apply for his job that he has in Georgetown. And the chair was Greek and all Hector knew was a Greek poem. And he told the guy this poem and made him emotional, made him cry. So there's all these accidents. If I look back on how I got to where I am now, that kind of had to happen for what I'm doing now to happen. So if the, if the tenure track gods are listening, I'm hoping for a happy accident uh, <laughs> regarding tenure track jobs because I'm more than willing to take a, a step through that door. <laughs> That thing of the the Poe, that is like, <laughs> that is like the most whole, like, I could just see like the story going like, so tell me about your experience with the job market. Be like, well, you know, I interviewed so it's here. And then, you know, I decided to take a chance. And the, the chair asked me if there was anything else I'd, I'd like to add. And I recited a poem from uh, like Homer. I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, don't remember what brought the the I don't remember what the poem was, but. <laughs> That, that, is, is, that is an incredible story. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like that of your, uh, out of, of, of Hector Campbell's, but also like just everything. I really love that you quoted Bob Ross because first of all, Bob Ross, but secondly, the happy little accidents, that's exactly what happened. Um, wow. Look at that. I think about, but the, the, the next step about the tenure track one came to me as I was going off on my little monologue. So. <laughs> but no, actually, yeah. I, I mean, mention it. You're hoping for a happy little accident. It's something you can pray to the tenure track job or gods for, um, potentially. Go with the flow. Like that really, that really spoke to me um, mm -hmm. personally because like, I mean, when I, I think when I first started my PhD, I was looking at, um, I was looking at online language teaching, like with kind of like a critical, like, um, like a critical mindset. Going from there to looking at, pedagogy practices in at a, in a post-secondary context in L2, I mean, completely, like, I mean, completely different directions. And like, I wondered sometimes, like I was thinking about when, when you were talking, like the people who advise us, who are like our first, our first advisors, I wonder what they think when we first give them like our idea of what we want to pursue. <laughs> like, I wonder if they keep like a master list of like, all right, Bowden, you started with so-and-so and then, you know, four or five years later, you ended up, you know, like way over here. I wonder if they keep like a, like a track or like track record of those things. Were you like that, Robin? I mean, what, I started undergrad, I was determined to be pre-med and then I got to Orgo 1 and I quit. So, um, and I took up uh, French and Spanish like full time and and then somehow I arrived in Alabama and I thought I wanted to do historical linguistics. I wanted to do like comparative French, Spanish, Catalan. And I kind of like the way that you described it as, you know, little accents because I actually, most of my motivation and my influences here local to UIUC come from different departments and different faculty. And my friends are all in different disciplines because I just find that there's so much that can enrich my understanding and my perception of, you know, French and, and French studies and linguistics by listening to other people. I mean, here we are. I still have a plan, mm -hmm. but 
go with the flow. And that, that's one of the big things I learned from my advisor here at UW. It's because I get hung up on stuff. It sucks when something doesn't happen and you're like, well, what did I do wrong? What's mm-hmm. the deal? And, you know, he's kind of taught me like reviewer two or, you know, you send this to do this with something to get funding for a, a research, whatever. Sometimes stuff just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You'll never know why, but you know, things do happen for a reason and you got to just kind of get back on the horse, readapt and, and revise your plan. And that's a very healthy outlook, especially for academics to really adopt. So I hope that people, any folks listening today who are just setting out on their, on their trajectory, first, like first semester master students or even undergrads considering grad school or even that fourth semester PhD student who's made like eight million mistakes and definitely forgot to email some people today. <laughs> um, really like consider the weight of Matt's lessons learned. Matt, you are fantastic. I am so happy that, you know, we finally got this chat on the books. We did it. It was fascinating. I'm so excited you're out there representing Asturian, representing Colombia love, like you're representing everyone and it's, and language variation. That's what we want. Diversity. There you go. Mic drop. That's it. I don't know. (laughs) That's my extent today. It's, not even noon and I'm, I'm very done for the day after I send those emails. I owe a lot of emails. All right. Well, I guess that, um, that, that finished, that finishes up. Um, Matt, thanks again for just, um, for spending, for spending part of your morning with us. We really appreciate it. I definitely learned, learned a lot. It's always good to talk with, talk with people who are, you know, really engaged with the kind of research that you're doing. It's going to be great. And yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun talking to y'all. There you go. Y'all, um, yeah, all right, definitely keep in touch on the Twitter. On the Twitter, for sure. If you want to keep talking to Sturian or Columbia, let me know. Or if, if any of your peers or you know other Gradlings uh, guests want to talk Sturian or Columbia, they can reach out to me too. I'd like to talk about it all. You heard that, Gradlings? Reach out to Matt, he's got your back on Sturian. We love it, we love to hear it. All right, folks, until next time, thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Sit me with my way. Let's